If you go down to Facebook, you can read all kinds of nonsense. But if you go to Liverpool FC Historical Society, you'll be able to see reams and reams of old match reports, old photos and old stuff from before 1992. Particular attention, I imagine, should be paid to what Kieran Smith and Jeff Goulding have written, which is a book celebrating the first Liverpool side to win back-to-back first divisions. Give me the two years that Liverpool won the first division. Before that? Uh, Before that was 1906. I've got 1901 as well on the card. Is that the first or second? The first one was 01, then it was 06. Yep. Um, Yep. And this book, um, if it's anything like the extracts that I've read, because this is Anfield has um, excerpted several players' stories uh, through Jeff's writing. Yes, um, yep. This is a portrait of a time, the post-war era, where slums had not been cleared, right? There were still slums in the Liverpool in the 1920s. Yep. Yes, there were some pretty hard times for a lot of people, yeah. Mm. And, of course, the football team. Uh, there was no European competition, but this was the era where local lads uh, could go and play. In fact, the first scouser to captain Liverpool Football Club uh, Tom Bromilo. Uh, inst- yes, uh, we must talk so about him first because he is the captain. The Steven Gerrard of his era, uh, but yes. Jeff calls him an advertiser's dream. So was he a matinee idol? It came as a real surprise because Tom's uh, family, have, they've got so much memorabilia of, of Tom's and a lot of memories about him. The telltale one for me, just how popular he was, as well as the team, uh, was and they are in the book, and it's his wedding photographs. Um, you've never seen anything like it. The streets were absolutely packed wow. with people. This guy was the bee's knees. He really was. And like I say, he was a, a Liverpoolian. He was a scouser, great player, uh, England international, uh, and a celebrity. You know, the family had already got it, but he he, he was involved in advertisements in newspapers and what have you, endorsing various things. An absolute star, an absolute star. And he was actually a columnist, so he had a football brain on him. Yeah, there was actually, there was, there was one or two. I mean, the, the biggest surprise that I found was a guy called Ephraim Longworth, who was one of the backs, he was one of the defenders for Liverpool, and he got a regular con in the Liverpool Echo for a number of seasons, actually. And he was quite vocal, put it that way. He, he got opinions of the game. Uh, how it should be played uh, and what have you. And he wasn't scared to put that in writing um, in his column. You know, it's, sometimes it's quite controversial for the time, I guess, things he, he, he was saying. But, it, you know, like I say, he, he was quite a, a football brain in there. And he obviously, he went, he then became part of the boot room, if we can call it that, later on. Tom went into management. Uh, he was actually over in uh, Holland at a club called Ajax, you might have heard. Of Ajax, um, he was over there for a, for a period as well. He was quite a, the tactician, you know. We mentioned obviously Rafa being a tactician, and I think the belief certainly within the family at the time was he, he would become Liverpool manager one day. But obviously that never materialised, sadly. But he, Tom was an absolute star, absolute legend. He really is. And when you saw those pictures of uh, Tom on his wedding day, did you think well? This would be a health and safety nightmare today. Where's the social distancing? We had it in Watford uh, in 1984. Our biggest result at the time was losing to Everton in the cup final. Andy Gray is a a nebbish. Elton and Graham Taylor were on the balcony and 
that's the pivotal photo of the history of Watford Football Club. Provincial town <laughs> with Elton John's money. And at Liverpool, you were not a provincial yes. town. You were the biggest team in England at the time. Yeah, certainly. And it, I think it just shows the standing that they, they obviously had. You know, it was... I, I don't know what the, the figures were quoted to you know people, but it, the street leading outside the church, it was absolutely rammed with people. It, it was an amazing sight. Uh, and Tom's there with his, his top hat and tails and what have you, and obviously the, the crowds are just, it, it's unbelievable. You know, there was no legroom at all. It was just absolutely packed in just for this, this guy's wedding, you know, and it's it's amazing. You don't think that it, it really happened back then, but I say they were, they were big stars. They really were big stars. Because they were watched by so many people. How, what was the capacity for Anfield all standing? I think Anfield, it, it had, again, in the 19, the early 20s, it was obviously, it obviously comes down to money as well, you know, the, the board of directors. They were recognising that football was becoming very popular. We saw... The development of the cop, for example. I mean, eventually, um, at the time of the Untouchables, there was no roof. That came later, 1928. They eventually put the roof on there, but they did a lot of changes. Um, the famed boys' pen was introduced um, in the tw- early 20s as well. Obviously, they were keen to get people through the gates, and there were even plans for a triple-tier Anfield Road end, believe it or not. Obviously, that, that never materialised. But, I mean, the cop held well over 20,000 on its own yeah. at I, the time. So. And, of course, that area, uh, and we'll talk about Walter Wadsworth now, in fact, he lived apparently 500 yards from the Cunard shipping headquarters where the Titanic was registered, although you could get yeah. a ship over from Ireland to Liverpool. So I imagine it was a hive of industry, so people could, Absolutely. if they wanted to have done, have built stuff. Of that size, yeah, yeah, and and Walter, you know, like I say, he he was born in that area. He kind of went into that. He was a stevedore as well. You know, he was working in the docks and what have you. And it, it's nice as well because I think, in terms of his playing style, I don't think he messed with him. Let's put it that way. You know, yes, there are some. Uh, do, do we know the name of the fan that he punched in 1923? Sadly not. I'll be intrigued to find out who that was. I've been asked to know exactly what was said as well. We may never find that one out. But, no, um, it's like the end of Lost in Translation. He was also banned by yeah, the FA in 1925. And yet he was so pivotal to this team in the first championship he was. Uh, team of yeah. 21-2. 18 clean sheets, 36 goals conceded. So was he the... What kind of... Defender was he? I think some have likened him to sort of a Jamie Carragher type. You you think of the the line of play you've got Elijah Scott in goal typically, and then you've got uh, McKinley along with the backs. And playing in front of those, you've got Wadsworth, McNabb, and Bromilow. Now Bromilow very much the cultured sort of midfielder, creative. Wadsworth and McNabb, it, it was. Basically, it's reported down the years uh, the ball might go past, but the player wouldn't. Um, that was a bit unfair because it kind of implies that all they did was boot people around. That wasn't the case. They were they were really good players. I mean, Jock was a he, you know he got an international cap for Scotland, and he was uh, you know he was a good player. But like I say, I think and they were actually friends as well away from football. Uh, into later years, so they'd obviously got a, an affinity for each other, shall we say, and it was, 
like I said, I think they looked out for each other and for the rest of the team. So, like I said, I mean, Jock was, uh, for the time, if you look at Elisha Scott, I think Elisha was about five foot eight, probably wouldn't even make it make the grade as a goalkeeper in today's world amazingly but Jock was 6 foot 2 which was quite a standout in the Liverpool side because most players were around 5 foot 8 5 foot 9 so physically Jock McNabb stood out and obviously alongside Walter Wadsworth I think it was a it was a decent defensive wall, shall we say. Yes. Um, and before we talk about the front five, this Elisha Scott, he should yeah. be talked of in the same tones as some of the great goalkeepers. I'm positive that Jonathan Wilson, I haven't checked this, uh, but his book, The Outsider, uh, goes okay. through some of the big goalkeepers of the last 150 years. How many games did Elisha Scott miss across those two seasons in the league? Wouldn't be many. I mean, he, I looked earlier, actually. I think his career, I think he played a total of 468 games. Um, he left Liverpool in 1934. So he'd had, you know, 20 seasons or so. But he, he was just immense. It's like I say, it amazes me because he was only five foot eight for a start. And I think he was, he was quite a thin guy. He was quite famous for wearing several jumpers and several pairs of socks just to try and make him look a bit more you know bulky than he actually was but he was an outstanding goalkeeper absolutely outstanding and again when you read the newspaper reports at the time it was virtually every game there was an outstanding save um, and the one that really stood out early on and I thought it, it kind of evokes a lot of there's a lot of nostalgia there but um, they were playing uh, Sunderland I think it was at Roker Park uh, Sunderland, I can't remember if they had a corner or it was uh, a cross, but the great Charlie Buchan uh, headed the ball and it was destined for the top corner. You know, it was going in and all of a sudden, you know, Elisha Scott just appears from nowhere and just grabs the ball. And uh, the newspaper report at the time, and I think there were some fan reports after uh, Elisha had passed away, they, they commented on this as well. Charlie Buchan just looked, stared at what seemed like an eternity and just made his way over to Elisha Scott, put his hand out and shook his hand, and then just carry on with the game. More you know, of that. Just... We need more of Sorry. that in the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, you can just picture the scene, you know, there in his, Elisha in his flat cap, and, I mean, it was just outstanding. What, you know, what a brilliant memory that would be for people that were there. You yeah. know, it was just... I mean, Charlie Buchan, one of the greatest English players of all time, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. They were just gents, weren't they? You know, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. But like I say, Elisha was well outstanding. You're talking about great goalkeepers that Liverpool have had. Obviously, it's difficult because sadly a lot of the people, if not all of the people that witnessed Elisha, are now gone, unfortunately. But you know, we've only got the the history books and the newspaper reports and whatever to to rely on. But you've got to put him right up there, I'm afraid. You know, he was exceptional and in these two seasons like I say it was virtually every game not that he was relied on because you know they got a decent defence but when he was there when he was needed he was just brilliant absolutely he, brilliant he missed two games the, the card says two that games yeah, across the season he's ever present right. ever present in one of them and the hilarity ensues because his brother was the goalkeeper at Everton Everton took a look at Elisha who'd come over from the Republic of Ireland uh, and Everton passed on him so Everton's biggest mistake. Yes, we, we can only imagine what uh, what it would have been. It was just one of those things. But uh, obviously his brother wasn't a bad keeper either. So, uh, But obviously Elisha was in a league of his own, shall we say, I think. He was, it, 
for his time and everything, exceptional, absolutely exceptional. And I must ask, if we're talking about two championships, this book, The Untouchables, tells of the story of Liverpool's first division winning teams, 1921-2, 1922-3. Where are all the silverware? Where are the medals? Where are the cups? Well, interesting question, because a lot of them, and this is the same with a lot of oh, past no. players, unfortunately, Don't. they're gone. They are gone. Tom Bromley's family, they've got his. I believe Elisha Scott's family have still got his over in Ireland. You'll see in the book with his, uh, one of the, the players is Danny Schoen. Um, they've got, I think it was the first of the two title wins. They were awarded a gold watch that was engraved for each player. They've still got that, uh, a pocket watch. But I'm afraid a lot of it is gone. And what was one of the things we did find as well, I think it was the, the captain was awarded a miniature trophy a miniature of the first division you know with the the lady on top the the famous first division trophy no idea where that's gone mm. absolutely no idea you know it's just one of those things and that's across the board you know I've, I've spoken to a lot of relatives you know players from different clubs down the years and they've got nothing at all absolutely nothing so we were quite lucky actually with with what we have got for the book uh, that these, you know, some of the relatives have actually kept these. It, it, I never expected to find anything, to be honest. If you don't look, you won't find. So we've named the goalkeeper Scott. Uh, two and three, remind me, were. We've got uh, Chuck called Donald McKinley. And believe it or not, was Scottish. Uh, and Ephraim Longworth. McKinley and Longworth, I think, I don't think they disliked each other, but I think there was a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it tension. Basically, Longworth was the captain originally. He started to lose his position uh, in the team for a period of time and he actually relinquished the captaincy and that then went to McKinley. Uh, McKinley then, he, he kept the captaincy until 28th uh, when Tom Bromley took it. But I've spoken to, this is the other thing as well, the, uh, the archives at Anfield at Liverpool Football Club, amazingly, all of the paperwork from the period, all of the minutes from meetings gone mm. basically by the sound of it just thrown away so we haven't got a lot to rely on but they they kind of believed as well that um, Longworth didn't like McKinley I think they were, Longworth in his newspaper articles had, had occasionally highlighted that I think um, I've never come across it myself but it, it was quite an interesting side story but as a partnership just outstanding again you know Liverpool was, defenders uh, Phil Neal Mark Lawrenson Alan Hansen yeah. It, that's what yeah. Liverpool's so good at. Van Dijk and whoever he's playing either side of. Is it is it going to be Matip this season or is it Konate? We don't, we're not quite sure who Liverpool's uh, number... Not really. It's, it's difficult at the minute because the start that they've made, it, it'd be difficult to drop anybody at the minute. I think I know Robertson's coming back, but whether he gets his place at, at full-back again, I don't know. It's it, a squad it game. To be seen. Lots of games to play, yes. whereas in this yes. day, um, 46 appearances. So... Uh, the two and the three, McKinley and Longworth. Four, five and six, Bromelow, Wadsworth. And uh, McNabb. And yeah, McNabb. Yeah. Uh, which leaves a front five of two wingers and two inside forwards and a number nine. Four short, Hopkin, Lacey, Chambers, Lucas. Who goes where? Well, Chambers has been a nice surprise for me because uh, this guy was just a phenomenal goal scorer. Absolutely brilliant. Again, England international didn't appreciate how good the guy was, to be honest. Um, so he's your, your centre-forward. Um, you've got Forshaw alongside Dick Forshaw. 
played several games as well. Um, another great goal scorer. So you've got Lacey. Uh, again, I kind of underappreciated just how great uh, Lacey was. And he's still revered by many uh, over in Ireland as well. He's uh, quite a big name over there. Hopkin. Uh, Fred Hopkin came from uh, Manchester United, believe it or not. Yeah, big um, signing. Cost a lot of money. Yeah, he did. He, he was quite a, quite a big name, again, at the time. So both Lacey and, and Hopkin were the, the wingers, if you like. You know, they're very creative. You know, you read the newspaper reports again. Obviously, there's no... It's not like Sky Television, where you get the, the lowdown of how many yards they're running a game, how many miles they're doing a season, all this, that and the other, but... There was a lot of assists, calling in the modern terms, from from Hopkin, especially. You know, he's mentioned quite a lot. Like I said, the local lads. It was, you know, we, we sort of told the story through the local lads in the book, and one of them was Danny Schoen. He was another forward as well. But Chambers has been the outstanding one for me in that forward line because I I, I really didn't appreciate just how good he was. Uh, and again, he's another one of these guys that fought in World War One came through that and he's just had an amazing career certainly at Anfield you know obviously winning the championships again he had a number of uh, England caps as well and again he was a quite a big star you know and it's it's quite interesting you know the old cigarette cards I've got a few of those from, from this era and it's just like the wording on the back of the cards obviously there was no television so you couldn't watch these players so these sort of things is this is how people certainly from outside Liverpool got to know these Mm -hmm. players the way they described them they really were great players you know and it's it just amazes me that it's taken this long before we can really get them to be kind of household names again if you like Uh well and that's how um it used to be I know that if you were based in London I think David Winner talks about this you'd go to Arsenal one week and Spurs the next and if Stanley Matthews turned up that was the event. That was the hot ticket. Yeah. Never mind the West End. Um, yeah, exactly. I wanted this, the 1920s era, best known for Herbert Chapman, who was very naughty and then yes. did some very great things. Does Herbert Chapman come up as the greatest foe of Liverpool in the 20s? I brought him into the book kind of later on, which you'll see, because we kind of looked... Because if you take face value, Liverpool win the league, win the league... And then that's it. They just disappear quite literally overnight. And I'd looked into it quite a while ago as well. Tactically, the game was changing. And obviously, you mentioned Herbert Chapman, uh, who certainly the, the WM formation came in into that era. They, they made a change to the uh, offside rule, which I can't, I can't remember exactly what the change was now. But the, I think it's three Herbert to Chapman. two or four to three. It, it's some. It's one fewer person yeah. between the goal, which made that's more right. Yeah, so Herbert Chapman tried to counter that by developing this new formation. But apparently there, there's evidence that so I think Sunderland were, were working on on that before Herbert Chapman. Herbert Chapman certainly took it to another level and, and made it you know, what it became. And then it, it's kind of interesting because Herbert Chapman was at uh, Huddersfield, uh, obviously before the Arsenal. Liverpool win the league in 22-23. And then I say they fall off the radar a little bit, but then Huddersfield, I think Huddersfield won it the next three seasons mm-hmm. on the trot. So, so it, it would be hard to say that Herbert Chapman obviously wasn't behind that because obviously he was, and he was quite a inventive manager, controversial at times possibly. But I say he developed Huddersfield, and then obviously went on to to Arsenal and, and did his thing there as well. Obviously, unfortunately, his life was cut quite short, wasn't mm-hmm. it? But um, but his impact on the game, yeah, 
Oh, just immense, really. And his life is told by Paddy Barclay, Patrick Barclay, or Paddy, uh, in a biography that came out a few years ago. Um, meanwhile, okay. if you want anything to do with tactics, you know exactly where to go. It's Inverting the Pyramid, translated, if you include American English, into 20 languages. Um, do, do you hope that this book is translated into other languages? Because Liverpool are a global club. I think, yeah, if, if, was it David Goldblatt who talked about, or, or Henry Winter talked about people in Singapore getting up at stupendous o'clock they to do. watch Liverpool? Yeah, they do. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. We've been in touch with the Norwegian, we've been in touch with several of the supporters clubs, but Norway, they've got tens of thousands of uh, official members of the Liverpool Sports Club over there, uh, and it's the same kind of story across the globe. It always amazes me as well because uh, how it's picked up over in the States now, football, soccer, whereas they obviously like to term it, not so much these days, but um, again, they get up at ridiculous times. They've got various bars that the supporters club use across the States using it. There's been a lot of interest in the book over there as well. There's so many. Australia... Just every corner of the globe, really. It's my understanding that it will be translated. Obviously, it's the first time I've ever really been involved in a book, so Jeff's probably better placed to, to answer that. But I'm under the impression that, yes, it will be. Obviously, that can only be a good thing because it, it puts this story to the masses um, across the globe. A lot of people, obviously, coming into the game in the Premier League era will know absolutely nothing about this era at all. So it's... I think it's important that as many Liverpool fans as possible get to know these players and and realise just how important they are to the history of the club. You know, it's um, it's an interesting history. It wasn't always good for the individual players. You know, some of them fell on hard times after the game. Um, like I said, the World War One careers of some of them. Some of them were very lucky to survive World War One. So it's uh, it's a social story as much as, as football, really. So yeah, it'd be great to see global you know, what people think of it. It's very clever because a century on, we've had Shankly, and what Klopp is doing is he's making the team the star. You can take out Robinson yeah. and Simikas comes in, you take out Salah and I guess this season it's going to be Elliot or Jota who comes in or Minamino yeah. if he's still about. But Jeff, your co-author has written six books. There's the Red Odyssey trilogy and I was trying to think of if this period has been written about before, and I guess Jeff wrote about it in Red Odyssey because he goes right the way back to the formation yes. of the club. Yeah. It's nice that when we announced to the world, if you like, that we were doing this book last year, the amount of people that came forward and said, at last, you know. So people, you know, people do know about it, but obviously they were really keen to know more. It's certainly something that's never been explored in depth. Uh, and like I say, there's a lot of mistruth, if we can put it that way, uh, especially online, with, obviously, with a lot of things, that's always the case. One of the big things for both of us, I think, was getting to grips with the manager at the time, was a chap called Dave Ashworth, David Ashworth, who mysteriously, partway through the second season, they won the league, they were going great guns, and then he just up sticks and went to Oldham Athletic, which is mm. where he'd been previously. Now, if you look online, there's various reasons for that, but we think we've nailed it. You know, we've it took several weeks of research. We've penned his life story. You know, we, we, I think we've answered it. So I'm hoping that's one mystery solved because a lot of people said that's what we want to find out. We. we why would Dave Ashworth just get up and go? And it's quite interesting as well, which we talk about in the book. And like I say, this is more of a football thing, 
the role or the roles that people had away from the team, and obviously the, the manager being one of those, how different it is to today's world. The, the manager of a football team in the 1920s, absolutely nothing like the you know the, where we are now. Did he select the team? Uh, Did the manager select the team in those well, days? Well, basically, from what we understand, he he had his trainers, which uh, the there was a chap called Bill Connell who was very well respected. He was the like the head trainer, if you like. They got Charlie Wilson alongside him. Charlie Wilson was a, a former player. He'd won the league previously with Liverpool. And I, I think the picture we're getting, obviously they were doing the day-to-day stuff. They were seeing what players were. Uh, I, I guess Ashworth must have overlooked it. It was literally a case of writing down the players' names for the team. It was pinned on a notice board in the boardroom. And then the board of directors overlooked mm-hmm. the paper, you know the paperwork and they made the final decision but what is quite interesting for us as well at the time obviously we're seeing that the board of directors were quite heavily involved with the playing side of things and who played each week it's quite interesting to see who that board of directors was made of because uh, we've got Matt McQueen who was a who became manager after Ashworth. He was on the, the board of directors again. He was a, a previous player. There was a couple of ex-Evertonians in there as well. So there were, these were players of a previous era, but they got football knowledge. I think that probably helped quite a great deal when it comes to you know the team selection. But it's quite interesting. Like, a lot of the time, the manager wasn't even at the game, which seems extraordinary nowadays, but the manager wasn't even there. So it was almost uh, an admin role, I guess. And it there was quite a big emphasis. Obviously, we've concentrated on Liverpool. I guess other clubs must have been the same. There was an emphasis on uh, player recruitment. That was a, a big thing. So you, you got your club secretary and, uh, and various other people going on a lot of scouting missions. And, uh, and I think that kind of that, that's a big part of the manager's job as well was was recruiting players yeah. day-to-day stuff i'm not so sure it was the case back then but i think again probably somebody like herbert chapman was changing that i think he was obviously a bit more involved and it speaking to the the archive uh, the lfc archive people it seems the first manager who had overall control of the team at Liverpool was bill shankley which was 1959 so which was about was, the same time that um, the England selectors gave power to Alf Ramsey in about 62, 63. Yes. So that was the yeah. era. And coincidentally, that was the era where the maximum wage had been repealed. Was it a five yes. of the maximum wage in 1921? I think, yes. I think that's what the league had set as, mm. a, as, a, as a standard. You know, that, that was kind of the limit. And the like PFA had just come into being through Billy Meredith's activities. That's right, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so things have changed. I'd say the 1920s, obviously for us as, as Liverpool fans, it was an interesting time with the league championship wins. But the game was developing quite fast, you know, in terms of rule changes. And uh, another interesting one as well, uh, again at Liverpool, now, I think there was a, a move for all, certainly Division One teams, uh, was to have, it was basically a youth team. It, it was a development team and they were encouraged to, to bring in local lads and they used to put adverts out in the newspapers to come and have a trial at Anfield and, you know, a certain age group, sort of 16, 17 year olds. There was that move as well. Um, the role of, of manager, I think, was starting to develop. So it was an interesting time, interesting time. And that time is documented in the Untouchables, Anfield's Band of Brothers, 
written by Kieran Smith with Jeff Goulding. And the book is available through Pitch Publications. Um, I can see that there's a £5 off. I don't know if that will run into when the book is released because um, we're talking a month before it's released. But you'll be doing a lot of press for this. Every Liverpool fan at least should know that this book is out because it solves a mystery. It captures the era of one of the finest cities in the world before the Beatles were even born. That's how far exactly. back this goes. Yes. Uh, really and, yep, yeah, well, the only question I have to ask you, uh, Kieran Smith, who runs LFC, uh, Liverpool FC Historical Society on Facebook, and good luck getting to... 10,000. What about the next book? A? 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 Well, well, there's always an idea. We'll see. We'll see. Like (laughs) I say, it's given me a bit of a taste, so you never know. Yeah, I know it takes so long, and uh, this is... It does, yes. This is an exhaustive work of history. I've also spoken to the guys... uh, Bill and David behind football's Black Pioneers. There's a lot of trawling oh, through please. newsprint, and uh, oh, I'm yes. not yeah. I'm not going to get my fingers inky because uh, I will look at the National Archives. But I look forward to learning all about the Liverpool FA Youth Cup history. Yes. Um, Jimmy Case, in particular, I think came through Absolutely. Liverpool um, he because did. he went from kids to champions. Um, but the era of the untouchables has passed. And I like the fact that when you're reading, you're forming the story in your own mind. It's not like you're reading, I don't know, Troy Deeney's yeah. book. Patrice evra has got a book out at, as this goes out. If He'll be doing some publicity behind it. What would you rather read? Patrice Evra's thoughts on football and stuff or the untouchables? Anfield's Band of Brothers out now. Kieran Smith, thank you so, so much. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Just like the library! Just like the library!